den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt... Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, oh, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, and now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mary. My pleasure, Billy. And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye. Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine, available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere, or at amazon.com or archaicmedia.info. That is A-R-C-H-A-I-C-M-E-D-I-A dot info. <laughs> Mrs. DeMarco's Corpse by Ray Garton. Leonard Porter had been a police officer in the small town of Anderson for 22 years, and in that time he had never seen anything as unsettling as the corpse in apartment 212 of Riverfront Apartments. It was a low-rent complex, and most of its residents were on welfare. It was run down and long overdue for a paint job. One of the residents, a young, single mother named Dottie Crendon, had called the police department on that hot July day to complain about a smell that was only getting worse, a smell that seemed to be coming from apartment 212. No one had seen Beverly DeMarco, the old widow who lived in the apartment for about three weeks, but no one had knocked on her door to see if she was home, to find out if she was alright. Porter had rung the doorbell and knocked on the door, and even called out to be let in, identifying himself as a police officer. When no one had responded, he had gone to the manager's apartment and asked to be let into 212. 
The manager, a tall, stringy fellow named David Radiger, had gone upstairs with his passkey and opened the door. The smell that came out of the apartment was overwhelming, and Radiger had backed off down the concrete walkway, waving his hand back and forth in front of his face and coughing. Porter had gone in with a handkerchief over his face. First, he found Miss DeMarco's two cats, an orange tabby and a gray Persian. Then he'd found Mrs. DeMarco. She was sprawled on the kitchen floor, lying on her back. Porter stood there, staring down at her remains, not really wanting to look, but unable to look away. Beverly DeMarco wore a sleeveless, blue and white house dress, and over that a green apron. The clothes were taut over her abdomen, which was bloated by gases inside her body. Her scrawny legs were bare and spread wide, and her dress had hiked up around them. Her cats had survived by eating parts of her legs and arms. Her wrinkled skin had a yellowish-gray pallor. The tips of her fingers had been nibbled off by the cats, and bone was visible. Fingers that were curved on each hand, as if she'd been clawing at the linoleum floor when she died. Her neck appeared impossibly thin, but her face, that was the worst part, her face. Her deep-set eyes were wide open and milky, lips pulled back over her long, discolored teeth in an unnatural grimace. It was little more than a skull with thin skin stretched taut over its surface, cheeks deeply sunken beneath sharp, blade-like cheekbones. Her silver hair was wiry and spread out around her head in a way that looked to Porter, as if it were being blown by a strong wind. The cats meowed loudly and rubbed against his legs again and again. There was no immediate sign of foul play. At her age, natural causes seemed the most likely, but that would be up to the coroner to determine. Porter looked around the kitchen. There were dishes in the sink, and it appeared that Mrs. DeMarco had been washing them when she died. There was a needlepoint sampler on the wall beside the refrigerator that read, God bless this mess. There was a pot of eggs, some with cracked shells, and water on the gas stove, but he found all the knobs turned to off. Apparently, she had just boiled some eggs. The apartment and its dead resident caused a sudden wave of sadness to pass over Porter. No one had checked on Mrs. DeMarco to see if she was okay. No one had cared enough to knock on her door or even call her on the phone. She had died alone and had been left that way by her uncaring neighbors. Somewhere in the complex, a baby wailed and children laughed. A telephone trilled a couple times before it was answered. A television played in one of the nearby apartments, and Porter could hear a studio audience laughing. And Mrs. DeMarco continued to silently decay on her kitchen floor. Porter turned to leave, to go out to his squad car and call a detective in the corner and to make some notes about the discovery for his report. As he stepped away from the corpse, something pulled on the left leg of his pants. Before looking down, he tugged his leg again, but something held it back. He stopped, turned back, and looked down. Mrs. DeMarco clutched his pant leg with her right hand. The bones sticking out of the tips of her fingers were closed tight on the cuff of his pant leg. 
Her milky eyes looked directly up into his eyes, and he saw her bloated tongue move in her mouth. Porter stopped breathing. For a moment, he couldn't breathe, and his entire body stiffened. Her lips moved, and the voice that came from her was a low, gurgly rasp. You're going to die soon, Mrs. DeMarco said. Her dry, cracked lips peeled back around her teeth and did not move when she spoke. Then again, you're going to die soon. Porter heard a horrible sound then, a high, keening cry, and he realized after a moment that it was coming from him. He was screaming. The hand holding his pant leg dropped to the floor and Porter tripped over his own feet leaving the kitchen. He fell into the small living room and crawled a few feet on hands and knees across the ratty tan carpet, then scrambled to his feet and ran to the open door. He went out of the apartment and both hands clutched the metal railing that ran along the concrete walkway. His shoulders rose and fell as he gasped for breath, but he could still smell the decaying corpse. Oh God, he said as he exhaled, his voice breathy and broken. You okay? Radiger said. He stood a couple yards down the walkway, away from the open door of Mrs. DeMarco's apartment. Porter suffered from angina, and he felt a twinge of pain in his chest. He had pills for it, but they were in the glove box of his squad car. He pressed a hand flat to the center of his chest, took a few deep breaths. Is she dead? Radiger said. Porter nodded. He licked his lips and cleared his throat. His voice was dry and hoarse when he said, Yeah, yeah, she's, she's dead. He realized he was trembling all over, and his knees were weak. His heart pounded so hard that he could hear it in his ears and feel it in his throat and fingertips. You okay? Radiger asked again. Porter didn't answer. He stood up straight, stiffened his back, and went down the walkway, past Radiger, and down the stairs to the courtyard below. He went to his car, opened it, and got in. He sat there for what seemed like a long time, trying to pull himself together. He closed his eyes, bit his lower lip between his teeth, and took deep, slow breaths through his nose. It didn't happen, he whispered to himself. He repeated the words a few times, but they did no good. With his eyes closed, he saw Mrs. DeMarco on the floor, clutching his pant leg, her milky eyes staring intensely up at him, her tongue moving in the unnaturally wide mouth. You're going to die soon. Pain blossomed in his chest again. He opened the glove box and took out the orange prescription bottle, took off the cap and shook a pill into his palm. He put the bottle back, popped the pill into his mouth then took the can of warm, flat Dr. Pepper from the cup holder between the seats and drank the pill down. He reached out for his radio microphone and saw his hand shudder. He clenched it into a fist for a long moment, then relaxed it again, took the microphone from its hook, and called it in. Two hours later, Porter drove to the station and parked his squad car. Inside, he went to the desk sergeant, Andy Cole. Geez, Lenny, Cole said. You look like hell. Yeah, I'm not feeling so good, Porter said. I'm going to have to go home. Okay, sure. You all right? I will be. Porter drove home in his Honda Accord, 
to his apartment in Magnolia Estates. He'd lived there for 12 years, ever since his divorce. He'd quit smoking years ago, but he could not remember the last time he'd needed a cigarette as much as he did now. Against his better judgment, he stopped at the 7-Eleven and picked up a pack of Marlboros. He just wanted one smoke, that was all, and doubted he'd ever finish the pack. He parked in his space, walked past the pool and up the stairs to his apartment. On his way up, he realized that the layout of Magnolia Estates was not very different from that of Riverfront Apartments, but it was in far better shape, clean and well cared for. You're going to die soon. And there was no foul smell of human decay. In his apartment, he went to his kitchen, took a bottle of Chardonnay from the cupboard, opened it, and poured some in a water glass. He drank it down in a few swallows and poured some more. He got a pack of matches from a drawer and put it in his pocket. He took the glass, the bottle, and a small bowl with him to the living room and sat down in his recliner, still wearing his uniform. He turned on the television with the remote. He put the bowl and the bottle on a lamp table beside the recliner, lit a cigarette, and used the bowl as an ashtray. He leaned back in the chair and closed his eyes, but he saw her again. Arms and legs half-eaten by the cats, milky eyes open wide, mouth pulled back from her old, yellowish teeth. You're going to die soon. He opened his eyes again and tried to find something on television to watch. He settled on a rerun of Seinfeld. Porter did his best to think around what he'd seen, what he thought he'd seen, and keep his mind off of it. But he kept feeling the old woman's hand clutching his pant leg. By the time Seinfeld was over, Porter had drunk most of the wine in the bottle and had smoked four cigarettes. And still, he could not keep his mind off the corpse. You're going to die soon. He got up and went to the bathroom, emptied his bladder, then took off his shirt on the way into his bedroom. The wine had made him sluggish, and his first cigarettes in a dozen years made him cough. He stripped down to his boxers and got into bed. He rolled over on his side and saw a hand sticking up from the side of the bed closest to the wall. He sat up and saw her lying there, her head at the foot of the bed, reaching up with her right hand, bones sticking out of her eaten fingertips. Porter screamed as he scrambled to get off the bed on the other side. He became tangled in the covers and fell to the floor. You're going to die soon. But he got to his feet and opened his nightstand drawer, took out his thirty-eight revolver and held the gun in both hands as he aimed it at the far side of the bed. The hand was gone. He slowly walked around the foot of the bed. The gun made a small chittering sound in his shaking hands. The corpse was gone. It was never there, Porter thought as he lowered the gun. You're going to die soon. He put the gun back in the drawer, put on his robe and slippers, and went back out to the living room. He finished off the bottle of wine and smoked three more cigarettes, then fell asleep in his recliner, watching Jerry Springer. As he slept, he dreamed of Miss DeMarco's corpse in the small kitchen of her apartment. 
In his dream, the corpse rose to its feet and reached out for his throat with bony, eaten fingers. Porter cried out as he sat up in the recliner. It was dark, and the only light came from the television. An infomercial for a juicer was playing. The clock on the VCR read 1.33. He did not go back to sleep. The next morning, he called the station. I'm not feeling too good, he told Carolyn at the front desk. Oh, I'm sorry, Lenny, she said. You gonna stay home today? Well, actually, I've got quite a bit of vacation time coming to me. I'd like to take some of it now. Oh, okay. How long do you think you'll be out? I don't know yet. I'll give you a call at the end of the week. After hanging up, he went into the bathroom to take a shower and found Mrs. DeMarco lying in the bathtub, arm outstretched, fingers clutching, tongue wriggling in her mouth. Porter stumbled backward and fell to the floor, turned around and crawled out of the bathroom, making a groaning sound. He got to his feet and turned, looked into the bathroom. There was nothing in the tub. You're going to die soon. He backed away from the bathroom. In the living room, he smoked another cigarette with a trembling hand. Porter wondered how he would sound if he told someone what was happening to him. Who would he tell? One of his fellow officers? One of his neighbors? He didn't even know his neighbors. Porter had kept to himself since his divorce. He was a kind of solitary person who did not clutter his life with other people and put most of his time and energy into his job. His hands continued to tremble. His heart pounded. He ran a hand down his face and felt unshaven stubble. He put on some clothes and drove down to Duffy's Liquors, picked up a bottle of scotch, another pack of cigarettes, and went home. A week passed. At the beginning of the week, Porter had called the station again and arranged to take his other two weeks of vacation time as well. It felt like it would be a little while before he could go back to work. For most of that time, Porter was drunk. He made a couple trips to Duffy's Liquors, one to 7-Eleven for bread, lunch meat, and milk, but he ate very little of the food he bought. He now wore a beard and mustache. His hair was greasy because he had not bathed. He went to the bathroom only when he needed to, and to his bedroom even less. He did not sleep, although on occasion he dozed in his recliner, only to be awakened by a vision of Mrs. DeMarco's decaying corpse clutching his pant leg. You're going to die soon, Mrs. DeMarco's rasping voice said in his mind, again and again. There was nothing he could do to shut the voice off, to block out the words. His phone rang a few times, but he did not answer it, and he ignored his voicemail. On Friday afternoon, he went to the kitchen to make himself a sandwich. Mrs. DeMarco lay on the kitchen floor, reaching out for him. Her tongue moved, but she did not make a sound. He heard the words in his mind, though. You're going to die soon. Pain exploded in his chest, so intense that he could not make a sound, could not breathe. His legs buckled and he landed on his ass on the floor, eyes clenched shut. He put a hand to his chest and finally sucked in a breath. 
When he opened his eyes again, the corpse was gone. But the pain did not go away. It continued to explode in his chest, over and over again, radiating into his shoulders and arms until he fell onto his back, mouth open, making a strangled sound in his throat. Leonard Porter had been away from work for three weeks when Officer Kevin Nandry was summoned to Magnolia Estates. He went to apartment 14A to see Mrs. Olivette Spelling, who had called the police, but he smelled the foul odor as soon as he entered the complex. Mrs. Spelling said it seemed to be coming from apartment 16B, just upstairs. Officer Nadry was concerned. He knew Porter lived there. No one's seen him in a couple of weeks, Mrs. Spelling told him. Nadry went upstairs and knocked on the door. Hey, Lenny, you in there? He rang the bell. No response. He found the manager, a Mrs. Fuchs, and she led him into the apartment. The smell was overpowering. Nadry entered with a sick feeling of dread. The television was on with the volume low. He found Porter on the kitchen floor, his body well into the process of decay. Oh, God, Lenny, Nadry said, his voice thin and sad. He turned to leave the kitchen, but something held his pant leg. He looked down and saw Porter clutching his pant leg. You're going to die soon, Porter rasped. Nadry screamed as he ran out of the apartment.